launching into a new series this week. Uh, it's going to be on worship. I guess that's the sort of series that you would expect from an ex-worship pastor, right? A series on worship. So uh, I just figured while it was fresh on my mind uh, from spending seven years as a worship pastor that I should go ahead and get out some of the things I have to say about worship that I didn't always get to say since a uh, worship pastor doesn't always get to say a whole lot. But um, So we're going to kind of look into that uh, subject over the next few weeks. And I think Priscilla kind of put a schedule of titles and scripture uh, in there for you. And uh, so we... You have that to kind of look at. Now, don't look at that and say, now that title sounds kind of pitiful. Maybe I'll skip that week. Uh, please just come on to all of them, <laughs> whether I made a good title or not. How about that? So, uh, this also fits in a good timing to talk about worship because uh, we will begin to see a few changes to our worship service. Um, nothing that you should lose any sleep over, but you may look at something and scratch your head and say, why in the world are they doing that? And usually there will be some sort of method behind the madness, and we'll try and explain some of that as we go. Um, but uh, just, I mean, little things like today, adding that um, video for the children's dismissal. I should have given you a heads up on that, parents. <laughs> uh, but from uh, that's something we'll start doing, is using kind of a little video like that, and as soon as the kids see it, they can start heading out. Uh, that'll be kind of their cue. And that way we don't have to interrupt the song in the middle of it to say, Hey kids, go now! And then into the next verse. So, uh, <laughs> as much as that is impressive when we do it. Um, but that'll be good. Little things like that but, that you may see, just little changes or uh, new songs that we may learn or uh, the youth being a little more involved, different things like that. Uh, we have to look forward to. And I just want to just reassure you, though, that even as we kind of walk through some of these things, we're not talking about any sort of drastic overnight changes. And the, um, the, the worship folks and myself are all dedicated to doing things responsibly and in an unoffensive manner and being sensitive and that sort of thing. So uh, we'll be working to do that. So, but I just think um, it'd be worthwhile to maybe talk about worship a little bit. And as we get into this series, we may get into some specific things about our worship service. But today, really, I want to begin getting down to the heart of what worship is. And I believe that worship is basically giving God the credit that He deserves. Worship. He is worthy. And so we want to give God the credit that He deserves. It's, worship is a lot more than singing on Sunday. But that is a part of it. And it's an important part of it. Worship has very little to do with our personal preferences and a lot to do with God's personal preferences. So, we who choose to worship Him purpose to give Him the thanks and the credit and the worship that He alone is worthy of. We do this... Uh, basically, worship is a response to God, a response to who He is, but also a response to what He's done. Worship is uh, involved with the things that we say, but also with the things that we do. Worship 
is done together when we're all together, but it's also done when we're alone. So we're going to kind of explore this topic of worship. Worship is always all about God. You know, sometimes we think of worship as for us. You know, I'm going, man, I really need to get to church this week um, because I'm just running low. (laughs) I need to get in there and get filled up so I can make it through another week. And from that perspective, uh, we've, we've come to kind of a wrong motivation when that's the motivation. Because worship is for God, first and foremost. And when we gather here, it's for Him. It's to edify the church. You know, it's for others. And then lastly, we do get something out of it. But we get the most out of it when we focus and when we come from the right motivation, from the right heart. When we're coming because we want to give God something, not because we're wanting something from Him. And it's amazing how when we do that, when we show up and we offer something to God from a heart that is motivated to do that, then we are blessed in return. But when we come and we're seeking our own, you know, fulfillment, I guess, we're always let down because... They never sing the songs that we want them to sing. They never preach the sermon that we need to hear. And they never, you know, seem to care enough. Or they, you know, did not ask about Fluffy the dog who has been ill. And just all those things that we feel like we need, you know, when we're coming from the wrong motivation. When we're coming for ourselves instead of coming for God. So worship must begin with God. And that is its very nature. You know, we often talk about what God has done. Our worship songs often talk about what God has done. Uh, Even the songs that we sang today talked about, you know, we see what He has done and we worship Him. We see that He sent His Son and we worship Him. We see that He's saved us and we worship Him. I want to propose to you in the first part of this message that God deserves our worship whether he had done anything for us or not. He's worthy of our worship, whether he had sent his son or not, just by who he is. As God, he deserves and is worthy of our worship. There is a verse in Hebrews, a little passage Put it up here on the screen for you so you can see it. Simply it says, Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let that soak in for a second. Worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Throughout the Bible, God and fire are often seen together. It's a pretty powerful image. We have the image of the burning bush where God spoke to Moses and certainly got his attention, right? We have the image of the pillar of fire by which God led the people of Israel all over the wilderness. We have uh, the fire that Elijah called down from heaven to consume the offering when he was in the showdown with the pagan priests. Solomon, when he dedicated the temple, prayed a beautiful prayer. 
And at the end of that prayer, I don't think it was because of the beauty of the prayer, but it was a beautiful prayer. But at the end of that prayer, God, His presence visibly came down into the temple and filled it, and it describes it as fire. When the Holy Spirit came on believers, they described that as being like flames coming to rest on them. And even the descriptions of when Christ returns, uh, as it describes it even like in Second Thessalonians, it describes Him as coming with fire, in fire, a fiery arrival. Jesus will return with fire. Now, when a fire gets out of control, it's a scary thing. It can destroy everything in its path. And fire is something worth being afraid of, in a sense, of fearing. Now, healthy worship begins with a healthy fear of God and a healthy understanding of who He is. Our God is a consuming fire. But this fear of God is different than fear in the way we typically think of it. Okay? Now, I remember once uh, my mom, we were, in, uh, we were actually at Angel Fire, New Mexico, as a family when I was a kid. And she was cooking something in the kitchen. And she opened a drawer and reached in to get, I believe, an oven mitt. And what she almost grabbed was this. <laughs> A big old rat was staring up at her out of this drawer, and she went running and screaming across the house and ended up, I think, on an ottoman (laughs) before it was said and done. Now, this is not the kind of healthy, godly fear that I'm referring to. I don't want you to go running and screaming from God the next time you have a God encounter and end up on an ottoman somewhere. I, I was thinking of uh, you know some illustrations to to make sense of this kind of fear, and I thought of my friend Marcus. Now Marcus, I met Marcus in uh, in college. We were roommates for a while, and we actually kind of learned to lead worship together. He's a drummer in a worship band now, uh, and he didn't really know how to play the drums, and I didn't really know how to lead worship, but we figured it out together, and we've been pretty good buds ever since. But Marcus when I first met him, was one of the strongest dudes that I had ever met. And the amazing thing about that was it was just genetic. I mean, he hadn't worked out a day in his life, and all he ever ate was Fruit Loops, it seemed like. (laughs) And yet the guy had a six-pack, and he had the muscles, and I mean, he could throw many fridges around the dorm room. Not that that ever happened once. Maybe we got onto him a little too much once. (laughs) But I had a healthy respect for the strength of Marcus. Now, if Marcus was mad at me, you know, I would have cause to fear. If Marcus was mad at you, I would keep a safe distance, but I would not be afraid. <laughs> All right? You would be the one afraid. Now, so I kind of think of that with God a little bit because that's the thing about God is He is mighty. He is a consuming fire. He is stronger and by far than Marcus. <laughs> But he's on our side. And that's a nice thing to know. You still want to have a healthy respect for his strength, for his power. You might want to keep a little bit of distance in a sense. 
as far as not getting a little bit, uh, you don't want to get in the way, you know, of the, <laughs> of the wrath. But he's on our side, and he's that strong. One of the, another really great illustration, if you're familiar at all with uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, uh, and the Chronicles of Narnia books, and they've made movies of them now. Uh, C.S. Lewis, one of the great theologians of the last century or so, you know, is also a very creative author. And in this series of books, he created this imaginary land called Narnia, where animals come to life and all sorts of crazy things happen. Uh, but he uses that land and that fictional story to teach all sorts of beautiful truths about God, about heaven, about God's kingdom, about the way God works. And in this story, uh, there's a lion named Aslan. And he kind of is representative of Jesus. And I just want to read to you a little bit, a little passage concerning Aslan, where uh, some of the children are having a conversation with a beaver. Yes, a beaver. And they're talking about Aslan, this lion. And uh, here's what, just this short passage. Lucy nervously asks, is, is Aslan a man? Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood, the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver is telling you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. you know, sometimes we remember that God uh, we, is good, and sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that therefore he's safe or that he's a tame lion. But our God is a consuming fire. We forget sometimes how huge our God is, how mighty he is. We can tell because of the way. We sometimes treat him. Sometimes it seems like we treat God nowadays as a little less than our buddy. Someone we can have a little conversation with. Someone we can ask for stuff. Uh, people, you hear them use God's name just like it's an expression. Sometimes we take God's commandments that he gives us and uh, we shrug them off as though they're not that big of a deal. And we treat God as though he's not all that powerful at all. Let me ask you this. Do you really believe that there is a God? Do you really believe that he made all of this stuff? That he made you? Let me show you a few pictures. This is where we live, Earth. Shot taken from space. Sometimes when you're on earth, 
and you have a particularly clear night somewhere, you can catch glimpses of what's out there. And it suggests that there's something much more than just this planet Earth that we live on. We call that the Milky Way when we can see some milkiness in the sky. I saw a little bit of that this summer just on an extra clear night. You could look up and see just a milkier looking thick kind of cloud of stars I guess. And you realize wow there's a lot out there. What you're really looking at is the Milky Way which is a galaxy. Sometimes you can look out there and you can see just gobs of stars and stuff that are all lit up. That's the galaxy in which we live in which our solar system the planets that surround the sun is just one tiny little piece. That's mind-boggling, isn't it? This planet is tiny, just a speck compared to the sun. And the sun is a small star of many in this huge galaxy. Now, for some real perspective, that is what they call a galaxy cluster. A cluster of galaxies. Just a bunch of galaxies together. Now each of those galaxies is made up of all the stuff that the Milky Way is made up of. And they probably have tiny little solar systems in them too. Not much different than ours in some ways. Now the God that created all of that must be some kind of God. I dare you to try and fathom the greatness, the size of a God that made all that. And then picture yourself standing beside him. Standing at his throne. We underestimate God sometimes, I think. We're smaller than the smallest bug next to him, and yet we act like we're big stuff sometimes. Like we're important. We get mad when God doesn't do what we want him to, when we want him to. But what right have we? Let us be thankful, it says, and so worship God acceptably. What is acceptable worship? It's worship that comes with reverence and awe. Because our God is a consuming fire. Remember that passage that Pat read a few minutes ago from Exodus? The people of Israel are, have been delivered from Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. They are in the wilderness, wandering around. And God takes them to leading them with that pillar of fire, takes them to Mount Sinai, which becomes a significant place in the history of the Israelite nation and the Israelite people. But he takes them to this mountain. And in the verse that, verses that come just before what Pat read for us, he says, now Moses, you know, I'm going to do this thing here where I'm going to come down on the mountain and all, and I want them to kind of see me, hear me a little bit so that when you tell them to do something... 
<laughs> they'll believe you, all right? And I think God accomplished that, don't you? <laughs> he tells them, hey, spend a few days getting ready, preparing yourselves, setting yourselves aside this special few days just to get ready for me to come down. I need you to put up barriers around the mountain. I need you to instruct the people that they're not to cross those barriers or they're going to die. All right, there's going to be some rules. So, so, so they do all these preparations for days. And down comes God in smoke and fire on top of this mountain. The earth shook. The mountain shook. And from that mountain, he speaks. And the people trembled and shuddered. And they said, they begged Moses Let's not do that again, Moses. (laughs) From now on, how about you talk to God and then you let us know what's going on. Moses later had to even cover his face because when he would come back from talking with God, there would be this glow on it and that kind of freaked people out. So (laughs) he had to get a veil. Now, can you imagine being there with those folks at that site? You talk to him, Moses. We can't handle it. Hmm. You know, one thing about fire is it has no form. That's a good fit for God. Because, you know, have you ever tried to imagine what God must look like? I remember, I guess it was a Sunday school class or something, and one of my teachers asked me to Draw. We had to all draw what we thought God looked like. That was kind of humorous. <laughs> I was pretty well stumped, which I'm not much of an artist anyway. So it uh, wouldn't have been good even if I had known what to draw. But I did not know what to draw. It's hard to figure out. But see, here's the thing. God made our world. He's not of our world. We have this tendency, there's this tendency in our world to worship the stuff we can see, the stuff we can touch, the stuff we understand, or even to worship ourselves in some cases. We worship created stuff instead of the creator. Hmm. This is all a lot to wrap your mind around, all this I mean, even just the pictures of you know, the galaxies and all that stuff, it's, it's mind boggling to think about how big our God is. Sometimes God, in general, is hard to wrap your mind around. He is out there, that He created all this from nothing, that He's huge, that He's powerful, He made us, He made it all. I believe it. And if that's true, if he did all that, what kind of God do we think he is? Do we think he's some sort of tame lion? Such a God is worthy of our respect, worthy of our reverence, worthy of our awe, our worship. And he'd be worthy whether he had done anything nice for us or not. Because of who he is. And who we are not. And so part of worship. 
The reason it begins with God is because of who He is. We come and we worship God and we sing how great Thou art because He is great. And He'd be great again whether He had done anything for us or not. But here's the thing. He did do something for us. How blessed are we that we have a God who not only is that mighty and that powerful but thank goodness is on our side who is for us not against us. For how could we stand if He was against us? See, even when we were still separated from God by our poor choices, by our choices to worship created stuff rather than the Creator, even then, that God, that Almighty God, sent His Son as the ultimate example of justice and love wrapped into one. Justice because punishment was dealt out that was much deserved. And love because he took that punishment on himself instead of throwing it on us. In doing so, he made it so that all we have to do is choose his way of life, to choose him over ourselves and our old ways of life. All we have to do is turn from our, the way we used to live and turn to His way of life. All we have to do is accept His forgiveness, His grace, and He makes us right through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we worship Him not only for who He is, we worship Him for what He's done. And He's done what no one else could do for us. Hmm. So here's why worship begins with God one more time. It's because of who He is, the Almighty, the consuming fire. But we also worship Him for what He's done for us on the cross. So what now? What do we do with this? The more we grasp the wonder of God, the more we understand just how glorious He is, the more we understand just how much He did for us and just how much He loves us, then the more we're going to be drawn to worship Him even more than we ever have before. And so let me offer you a couple of things. First, and if you have your little card and you want to fill this out and take it with you, should have these in your bulletin. Let's treat God with the reverence and the awe that He deserves. The reverence and the awe that He deserves. Just as that verse said we should. Consider how you talk about God. Consider how you talk to God. Take inventory for a minute. How do you use God's name? If you call yourself a Christian, how do you make him look as you go through this life in the way you treat others? How do we act when we come to this place or a place like this and we worship with other believers? 
What does our behavior, our body language say? Are we treating God with the reverence and the awe that he deserves? Second thing. Respond to what he's done for us. Life is too short to just keep kicking this down the road. Ultimately, we all have a decision that we have to make regarding who Jesus is, what he's done for us, regarding the offer that God has made us to accept forgiveness and grace and turn to his way of life or to continue living life our way. It's only so far, like I say, down the road that you can kick that and you don't know how far that is. If you would accept it, if you would accept God's offer or maybe re-accept it, if it's if a lot has changed since when you first accepted it. What that involves is what they call repenting. Just turning from your old way of living and turning to his way of living. And it involves recognizing that you need forgiveness and asking his forgiveness and accepting it. It involves giving control of your life over to him. Placing your faith in Jesus Christ. Once you've decided to do that, your next step is baptism. Which is just a public proclamation and a very powerful symbol of what God does in our lives. It's really important to God, baptism. It's talked about a lot in the New Testament. So, if you decide today that you would like to accept God's offer, or if you want to go home and think about it, and then you decide you want to accept God's offer, I just want to challenge you to not just keep that inside and keep it private, because that's a sure way to let it die in most cases. But come and find a leader of this church. Come and find me. Tell us that you'd be interested in baptism. Tell us that you'd be interested in following Christ. And we'll help you with some next steps from there. Normally, I close with a prayer at the end of my messages. Today, I wanted to close with a passage of scripture from Revelation. It's in chapter 4. And you don't have to turn there. In fact, I'd kind of rather you close your eyes and just use your imagination a little bit. Because I'm going to kind of skip around some in, verse, in chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation. So, close your eyes and what we're going to talk about is uh, the Apostle John had a vision of what heaven might look like. God revealed this vision to him while he was stranded on an island. Church tradition says they tried to kill him with poison and that didn't work. And so they exiled him on the Isle of Patmos. And here's what he saw when he was in the spirit. There was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. 
And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. There was a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircling the throne. It also describes a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Try to picture all this. It says there were these four creatures, and that day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, then the elders fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever, and they lay their crowns before the throne, and they say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. In chapter 5, the Lamb shows up, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And John says he looked and he heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then John heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped.